Father, you keep this continual vision in front of us of what, of what we can be, of what live people look like, the way they bring relief to the poor and, uh, and raise up the oppressed and the way they, they seek out the places that are not the way heaven would have it. And, and, and our hearts long to be those people, Father, but when we seek to do that in our own power and we do that in our flesh, anger reigns and bitterness and frustration and, and arrogance and Father, all of us have at some point or another looked at askance at others like, how dare you not be the righteousness when even in our own hearts we're just suffering death. And even as I think through what we just sang, the line, my heart runs after you and my heart does run after you, God, and it runs after all my dumb idols sometimes as well. And, and I know I'm not the only one here like, to like that. And so, Father, in the midst of all of it, would you teach us how to live in the fullness of your life that, that even as we know that, that when, we, when we came to you and we placed our faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, that you placed your spirit in us, would you teach us how to actually walk with you in the day-to-day, -to, -day, to see the victory, to see the liveness that we just sang about? Thank you for all these things. Amen. Thanks so much, Ben. And a special thanks actually to Rob here because he wrote it like 10 years ago. And for 10 years, I have been leaning on him to play it. And he's like, ah, so what we would do back in the crew days, some of you guys who used to go to Oasis back with crew back in the day, we would just sneak and do it behind his back. But finally, we've got to, this is it. It's very exciting. It's a very exciting time at Brookside because Rob played the song finally. Uh, thanks, Rob. I, it means a lot. All right. Well, welcome to Brookside. If, uh, if I don't know you, I'm Steve Risky, and I'm the teaching pastor or whatever around here. I, and I say that with a funniness because when we, when, when we give titles like that, I'm the teaching pastor. There's that sense, and, and if you know me, you know how much I want it. By the way, won't stop. Kids, children's church, do it. Have a blast. They're looking at me with those big eyes like, now, now, now. All right. Have a great time, kids. That it can start to make this sort of lofty, I think I'm better than you, which is, of course, ludicrous, but that's not even really my worry because I know I'm just me. It's my worry is that you would sit in the seats and begin to think, that Christianity is a thing that's done from the stage at people, as opposed to it's a thing that we participate in together. And we've been looking at, at the book of 1 Peter, the disciple Peter, Jesus' follower, the one who was sort of the, the precocious disciple. If there was one who was going to walk in and put his foot right in the middle of it, it was going to be Peter. And of course, when you read the Gospels, you get the sense that despite the fact that Jesus often had to push Peter down and back. It's also Peter that Jesus just loved. And I love that because I put my foot in it. I charge in, and I want you to be that sort too, that God is not looking for the ones who stay safe. God is not looking for the ones who just get it right and don't mess it up. God is looking for the ones who want to charge in and, and love people and want to charge in and see if they can. And if they make mistakes, you know what they say? I'm sorry. You know, and they get back up and they, they do it again. And we want to be those people filled with faith. You see this. It says, a royal priesthood, a people set apart. The people set apart is just, I took the, the phrase that he used, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. The word holy just means set apart. Uh, I was joking earlier with uh, my friend Elijah here that <laughs> on a camp out one time, the mosquitoes were so bad that when we got in the tent, I spent like 20 minutes killing all the bugs in the tent. And it was night and there was no way I was going out. And I had to, I just had to go. And... 
I decided to desecrate an algae bottle because I was not getting out of that tent. You see, after that, we, just, we didn't use that algae bottle, right? It used to be set apart as a drinking vessel, and then I de-set it apart, okay? Uh, and in the same way as people looking to be set apart for a specific use, for God's use, to, to actually be his voice to the world, that's a royal priesthood. So often we like to think the priesthood is what happens at the stage, and then these people receive it. And if you're new here, we've been talking about this a lot that everybody who considers themselves a follower of Jesus, everybody who's placed their faith in Jesus for their salvation, it says he's placed their spirit in them. And if God is in you, that makes you a temple because a temple is a house of a God, right? And if the God of the universe is in you, you're part of his temple. And therefore, we are all together. And that's one of the goals of this, that we got into Peter. One of my things that you would come away with is a firm conviction that if you are not being part of God's appeal to the world, then we're not doing it right. Well, with that, last week, Peter began to teach us how we could do the royal priesthood thing. And that's important because so often we begin to think, maybe it means to be extra moral. And I come from, uh, I come from a church that was started by people who left the Amish church. I'm from that part of Northeast Ohio where you're getting out of Cleveland and on toward farmland and, and the Amish are there and, and their Amishness still stuck. And so always wearing skirts. And, and they, because of that one verse, they would cover their heads. Have you ever been in a place where, where the women cover their heads? My mom wanted to do that, but her British self would not let her do like the lace doily thing. So she had an army of hats for Sunday mornings, okay? And then, I don't know, it's just how they grew up because they were trying to figure out how do we be set apart? How do we be set apart? Is it, is it by the things we're against? Is it how we dress? Is it, where, what does it really lie? And Peter wants us to know that it lies in the people who copy Christ's way. We're gonna, we're gonna get into that. And today we're gonna look at a specific version. But let's review last week. We looked at Peter's motivators that he gave us for being this people. And Rob talked about it here that he doesn't just set us alive so that we can feel alive. Although if you look at number two, that we would experience that. But it begins with that idea that we want to people to be able to respond to God. <laughs> My wife is, uh, as a coworker, who um, we're talking about God yesterday. And, uh, and one of the doctors, who's a believer, came up, and the coworker's like, yeah, but I heard a cuss. And I imagine being a labor and delivery doctor, there, uh, there are moments of great stress and anxiety and all these sorts of things that go in. I mean, I've been there twice for labor. I never will cease to make this joke because it's hilarious. It looks really hard. I mean, <laughs> and, and I understand that being the doctor might be terribly difficult. I feel like I could probably do it, but probably not. Although years of being married to a labor and delivery nurse has led me to believe that I could walk in and start saying medical words and fake it. Like in the movie, what's that movie, Catch Me If You Can? Do you concur? Okay, uh, there's your weekly movie reference if you needed one. So here we are, that he's saying we want to respond to God. And this coworker's like, yeah, but they cussed. Doesn't that make God not true? And, oh my goodness. This doctor's kindness, this doctor's way with the patient, this doctor's way with the nurses. This doctor has been amazing. And I'm hoping that more and more, because of how this doctor has lived, the other nurses will be able to see maybe her God has something. You see how that works? All right. To be truly free. The more we live the Christ way, it gives us freedom. So much of what we do in this life says, I can be well when you treat me okay. I can be well when the toxic people were removed. I place all my well-being 
through you. And I want you to imagine well-being is like a string that goes out of your soul and through others, right? And so what I'm going to do in order to feel well, I'm going to wind it through all of you. And if any of you aren't well today, it's going to pull on me. I'm not, I can't be well because you weren't nice to me. You weren't kind to me. And the true Christian life, when we're okay in the midst of whatever evil, when we can, as, the, as the, Peter would say, suffer evil and return good, it not only brings wellness to our world, it brings wellness to us because we're free. When I have the ability to be well, I mean truly well, in the midst of whatever nonsense that you put out there, it is then that I'm free, right? Uh, it opens us to God's grace. That sounds funny because God's grace is free, but we, he, he's always a grace giver. God is, it, God's never going, I don't know if I wanna give you grace. That's not how God is. God loves to give you grace. But the problem is when I hang on to my own well-being for myself, I cease to be able to put his grace in my hands because I'm busy taking care of me. But when I empty my hands and say, Lord, I need your grace, what I do is I'm now free to receive that which he's always giving. I was thinking about that after last week because it made it sound like you can earn God's grace. That's ludicrous. But you can fail to receive it if you don't open your hands to it. All right. Um, and because our master Jesus did it first, we want to think of Christian not as a belief system or a religion primarily, although it extends to those things. It is primarily to be a Christian. If you were a Stevian, you'd be copying the Steve. Don't bother, all right? But if you're a Christian, right? You know, although there's the Paul thing, copy me as I copy Christ. If I'm copying Christ, copy that. If not, don't bother, right? But if you are a Christian, one who follows Christ, you're saying, that guy, that's how it works. If I could live life like that, I would be the happiest, most fulfilled, most effective human being. Christian, our master did it. So following in on Jesus' teaching, he said to his disciples, so we're, we're going to review from last week, picking up what we said, because we were talking last week. Peter began his teaching us how to be the set-apart people by talking about how we obey the government. And in order to do that, we had to pull this first thing, remember, that Peter learned. Because what had happened is Jesus said, who do you guys say I am? And it was Peter, dives right in. You're the Christ. You're the King. You're the Messiah we've been waiting for. You're the Son of the living God. And Peter says, yeah, Peter, good job. And, you know, Blessed are you, Peter, son of Jonah. You, that's what it says, right? But I like my version. Gold star, Peter. Anyway, Peter then begins to place on Jesus an expectation that Jesus is gonna march on Jerusalem like a conquering king and take over and become great. And then all the 12 disciples are gonna be his followers and they're gonna be his courtiers in the kingdom, all wearing crowns and purple robes and ruling the world. He has this mentality going that he's expecting Jesus to be this sort of over-conquering Messiah, because think about it, in your Jewish world that Peter wrote into, Caesars had rolled in just the generation before and taken over. They now rule Palestine, and he imagines someone like a Caesar doing the same thing, except for this time, they're on their side. And if you know what Jesus said, he says to Peter, remember Peter sticks his foot in and Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. This way of doing things, that's Satan's way of doing things. He, that's why Caesars look like they do. That's why rulers and governments and principalities, they all look like they do. I want to teach you how to do the real life. And his response is, so therefore, if anyone, anyone would come after me, that, be my disciple, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Because whoever would save his life will lose it. Think about it. All the time you spend protecting your life, does it work? trying to keep your happiness in a little bundle, trying to make sure you take care of you, looking after number one. Do people who look after number one really find happiness or do they just find riches with bitterness? I don't know, that's a thing. 
Whoever tries to save their life loses it, but whoever loses their life for his sake finds it. And then we jump forward, uh, just to keep going uh, along quickly. We talked about it. There is the possibility in the next slide for, for whoever will save his life will lose it. Right, we looked at that. We looked at those who find life because I give my life away to serve you and care about you, even though I know it's not coming back to me, but I find this great well-being because my master's like, yeah, we're in it together and we're doing it. And I find great life even in the presence of giving it away. That's the Christian way. But we have to look at this notion. What about the people who give their life away and get nothing in return? What about the people who are just victims? Here, check this out. If I find that uh, my, our friend Paul, our friend Paul just moved into a new house and community group got together and we went over and we painted some walls and we helped out, right? That's service, that's fun. That's me giving my life away and getting life in return. But I want you to imagine that Paul secretly hired a slaver, somebody who goes and captures slaves and sold me into slavery to Paul to paint his house. Same painting, same job. As a matter of fact, my life, what I would be doing would be the exact same thing. Only when I gave it, it was free life. But when it was stolen from me, I'm so bitter at Paul right now, slave driver. You here, Paul? Slaver. Yeah, that's right. We know you. Okay. You could, do you see the difference? The difference between I get to give and I have to give because it's taken from me is the difference between life and death, isn't it? Think about all the most beautiful goods that can be done. And the higher the good that you imagine, all you have to do is have it stolen and you will find some of the greatest evils. This is why when you know, Jesus says, greater love has no one than this and they lay down their life for their friend. And by the way, if a person, you know, when watching the movies or something, when someone actually dies for others, it's Iron Man was the last one we saw. If you haven't seen it yet, it's been out for a while, too bad. Uh, lays down his life. You're tearing up like, that's beautiful, right? But if, in the same way, if the life is stolen from it, it's just murder. The murder is one of the greatest evils. Do you see how get to and have to make this incredible divide? This is all coming into our passage today. So we have to have the mentality. So when we talked about his response to government, he talked about instead of helpless passivity, trusting action. And instead of bitter cynicism, confident righteousness. Instead of angry rebellion, wise submission. In other words, the Christians did submit to the emperors, but they also knew when to say, no, I'm gonna go ahead and keep my Christianity. You're gonna have to kill me for it. That means they didn't just do whatever. They, they submitted, but that did not make them slaves to the emperor. It made them free people who gave out of their honor and their choice. They chose to give their lives away. And when it came time for the emperor, because the very emperor who Peter was talking about was the one who began the Roman persecution of the Christians, I mean, burning them in his gardens as human torches kind of persecution. And uh, they said, no, we'll hold on to our faith. So these people who are saying, obey the emperor, know when to stop. This is all coming into play today. So I need to keep this all together for you. So he says, this was our sum up. So when we looked at our response to government, because honestly, there's an election coming and I want your heart to be free from all the nonsense. That doesn't mean I want you to ignore it. I really hope you think wisely about your vote. And I even hope you think wisely about your civic, um, what's the word I'm looking for, engagement. But I don't want it to own you. I don't want it to cause the bitterness and the anger and the, and the frustration and the I'm moving to Canada if. Really? 
is our rise and fall, is our well-being so connected to, to a business owner who became president in Washington, D.C., or uh, a politician before him, a local politician who became president? It, it, do they own our well-being that much? You see how we do that? So he said, we are neither afraid of nor enamored with the power of men's government because we trust that in all things our Father can handle it. So we reject anger, fear, bitterness, and instead we move forward in faith with thoughtful peace, seeking to enact the righteous change where we can. All right. Do you have the Christian way now? Do you, do you understand how we see the world, how we look at it and go, it doesn't own my life, but I give my life where I can for his glory. I lay down my life to serve others. And we've talked about places like with your boss. If your boss mistreats you, can you handle it? Can you say, my father still has me in the midst of all of it? When, when structures around you are moving or big or small, can you say, no matter what, no matter what's taken from me, I know that he'll take care of me. He's always provided me will. Can you live that way? Because you'll be free. But here's how it works. And now we get right to the brass tacks. Where are we going? You can fake that here. You can. As a matter of fact, I spent my life in church. My parents became Christians right around the time I was born. And I've spent my life in church I am well aware that the bright shininess that you see here is not the average week that you're going to live there. I don't know why we fake it, but we do. And I get it and I hate it. I, I there's nothing good about it. But the fact is we're looking to be the people and so we live it here. And I think you can even mostly hold it together at work. Now, some of you might be like, no, not even there, Steve. But the fact is, I'm, I suspect you can. But if you don't think this way of life works, do you know where it's really going to show up? Home. Home's the place where our heart returns and says, oh, now I can finally get life the way I want to. I've been giving life to everyone all day. I want to kick back. I want to put my shoes off. I want to, I want to you know, like get a cold drink of water or whatever. And, and, I, want to, I, don't want, and I want my kids to get out those fans like the Roman emperors and do this for a while and fan me. And I'd also like them to mow my lawn, do my dish. Do you, you, you see how much my soul can say, I can find the good life if, and I begin to loop it through my kids, which Lord help them. And then, uh, or whoever, right? Does this way of life work at home? Because if it doesn't work there, then it's a fraud. So just after Peter finishes talking about the way we serve masters and emperors, he says, likewise, we want to take this thing home. And in the same way that he began with the person who's most likely to have to give their life away, think about how a Roman household worked. He's going to start with the one who's going to be most challenged at this. So it, the reason these passages start with the wives is because, it's not because wives, you're the one screwing it up. We got to fix you first. It's not that. I don't know how that tone of voice just came out of me, by the way. But it's kind of awesome. I feel good about me. All right. What he's saying is just the same way that he started with the servants and talked about the masters because the servants are the ones who are most likely going to be grinding through. In the Roman household, the husband was king. He really was. The Roman law did not have any way to deal with what happened in the household. It just was like, yeah, the man's in charge, figure it out from there, right? And so the one who was most likely to have to figure out the Christian way in that world was a wife, especially if she had become a Christian and her husband hadn't. Likewise, wives, with that same mentality, be subject to your husbands so that if some of them do not obey the word, they may be won over. So he's got that same thought, because of God. He's not saying something like this, wives, be subject to your husbands because you have to, and if not, God doesn't like you, and, and then that will make you bad. 
What he's saying is, if you have the freedom of Christ, if you have the well-being from God that you can pour in life, even if your husband's kind of a chump, you'll be free. And his grace will reign in you. You see how that way begins to think? So that when they see... Uh, uh, that they may be won over without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. And then he goes on and says, don't let your adorning be external. Now, a lot is made of this because without, you know, trying to nail every woman to some stereotype that we have to all shove into, the fact is, on average, makeup doesn't sell to men. If you wanted to make a living off of selling makeup to me, you know, you're gonna be a Mary Kay you can do the Mary Kay thing. And I want my pink Cadillac. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to sell to men. You've already probably figured out. We had a long discussion on multi-level marketing this week. It was really enjoyable. This would be a bad strategy, right? Men have a different question that bugs them. And it's not, am I beautiful? And what Peter's saying is, that don't let your beauty just come from your ability to look like it. The braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry or, or whatever. And I... And it changes culture to culture and year to year. But I think we all know what it looks like for a woman to be whatever we would call pretty on the outside, but not beautiful. When I would do the talk for the, for the crew, I and mean, it was like the dad talk, sit down and talk like a dad, you know, and do the dad talk, all I would ask him is, you know it. You know it, and I would say, oh, what I, the, the words thing just all stopped coming out of my mouth at the right time. Okay, I would say, here's the deal. When you go through the grocery store, there's those magazines that sort of accost us that tell us what women's supposed to be. And in my mind, Cosmopolitan was the one, right? And I'd say there's a collection of women in pop culture who all of them are pretty enough, whatever we want to call that, to appear on the cover of that magazine, but you don't think they're beautiful. And we want to be careful because we only understand them from the two-dimensional world. Of pop, so we don't know what's really in their hearts. But at least on a pop cultural level, to be able to understand it, who, who comes to your mind when you think that in the first year it was Paris Hilton or, or Britney Spears or, or whatever years, the years went by, uh, the, you know, the Kardashian thing. And I don't know what's in their hearts. I do not want to judge them. That's not fair to them. But it was an easy reference point to say, oh, I get it. That's what it appears to look like to let your adornment come from the outside. But what's super instructive not this last year, I think not 2019, but in 2018, I believe it was, People Magazine's Most Beautiful Woman of the Year, Julia Roberts, at 59 years old. And granted, she's still a pretty woman, huh? Yeah, okay. But uh, two movie references, we're up, we're doing good. But, uh, but there's something about her that strikes us as being from her soul, Right? And again, she might be a terrible person in real life. It's not fair for us to act like we know people because we see them on a movie screen. But Peter is saying that phenomenon, let it be true in your soul for real. Not how you put on your external, but let your beauty come from the hidden person of the heart, the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. Now, this doesn't mean that you're not talking a lot. Some of you have more words to say. It means the kind of spirit that's at peace because it's okay with itself. Does that make sense? So we're not like, a woman should be seen and not heard. That's not what we're saying. <laughs> that when your spirit's always at tempest because you don't know where your life is gonna come from and you're grasping it at every turn, then that's not, he's like, what if your beauty came from the very well of well-being that comes out of you from God? And he says, goes on to say, this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by, by submitting to their own husbands. And he goes on to talk about Sarah. Now remember, 
Peter's writing to a very Jewish church because this was early on and it was still primarily a Jewish religion. And he knows that if he borrows off of their Jewish faith, it'll make sense to them. And the, very, like the, the cornerstone, so to speak, of their Jewish faith, the beginning of it is the man Abraham and his wife Sarah and this life that they set out to live. And so if he's borrowing off of Sarah, he's basically acting like he's borrowing off of Wonder Woman, like the archetype of what it means to be a woman in their world. And, and, and who obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you're like, what? And the fact is, I think the Bible's saying you have to call your husband Lord. <laughs> is, that, is that it? Although I kind of like Sandy too, but she's not here. So I'm just kind of preaching to no one now. No, what we actually need to do to understand this is actually just go look at the passage because he's not making up what their life was like. He's actually borrowing off a real situation that happened. And if we go to that situation, I think this will make some sense because we're, we're gonna be reading from Genesis 18 here, but I wanna go back to Genesis 12 briefly. Abraham was living in modern day Iraq and God appeared to him and said, go to some land that you've never heard of because in their world, far away was far away. You didn't get in a car and drive, Right? Go to somewhere where you can't even imagine and I'm gonna set up a life and a family and, a, and, a, and, a, and you'll become a mighty nation there. And he obeys God and he wanders off all the way up over the Fertile Crescent and down into modern day Israel with his wife, supposed to be becoming a great nation, but in order to become a great nation, you gotta have children and they're not, they're barren. And, uh, and it's gone years this way, years. Abraham, who, you know, if you're a Jewish person, you're thinking, this is the man, I mean, 4,000 years later, we still use his name. He's Abraham. And, and he's trying to walk with God and figure out his thing with God in the middle of all of it. And, and, and his wife, we're going to find out in this passage, she's actually now past menopause. It's really, really, really hard to have a baby past menopause. And it says this, the Lord appeared to him at the Oaks of Mamre. And, uh, and he sat down at the door of the tent in, in the heat of the day. And there's some or exposition about what happened about him meeting there. And, and Abraham went quickly into the tent because God has come to visit him again. And, and, and he goes to his wife and says, quick, really quick, make bread. She has the ability to go, uh, I'll make bread when I'm ready. She has the ability to say, what in the world? Why you? She has the ability to say, uh, dinner's going to be it. She's got a lot of things, but because she trusts her husband, because she trusts him that she knows something about his, this quick, now it's, it's written uh, that way to give you this sense that he's urgent. And because she loves him, she goes ahead and lays down her life here and trusts him. So it goes on to say that, uh, that he ran out to the herd and he took a calf and, and then there's a bunch of exposition about him preparing the calf. I, I don't know why, but you probably didn't want to read it. And he, and he, stood, by them on, uh, and he stood by them under the tree. Uh, the them is because God appeared with two others. And, and while they ate, for Abraham, he knows this is a big moment. And the Lord says to him, I'll surely return to you about this time next year. This is me. And Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Well, Sarah, check her out. She's totally into this. She's not like, whatever, this Abraham was dumb Abraham stuff. I don't know. She's like, what's going on with this? Super cool. Because she loves her husband and she's part of this journey with him. Do you feel the with them in it? And, and she was listening at the tent door behind him and Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years and the way of women had ceased to be, and she's gone through menopause. Uh, so Sarah laughed to herself saying, after I'm worn out and my Lord is old. You see, she thinks of Abraham as this, not the way we would use my Lord, because we use it only for God. 
but this one whose life she's attached herself to and she finds great joy in it. Remember, Peter's borrowing off of how we think of the government or whatever. We're free people. And if she says, my Lord, because she has to, do you feel the weight of the thing that has been ripped from her and robbed? But if it's because of how she thinks of her husband and the great joy in which she has thinking of him as the greatest thing, then you see the get to and have to. And for a moment, wives, what do you want to be married to? Because as long as we're talking to wives, what do you want to be married to? Because if you like the idea of being married to greatness, if that was part of what you wanted, then it's a really poor strategy for yourself to tear it down and destroy it. Oh, but we do it. We both do it, men and women, right? This isn't, right? In other words, if I want a wife who's happy and beautiful and, and thrives in my presence, it's gonna be a really bad strategy for me to rip her down and tear her down. And in the same way, if you want greatness, then treat it like greatness. And that's what Sarah does here. And that's what Peter's trying to say is Sarah is so excited about what Abraham's about that she's joining in. And the more she makes of him, the more she gets. You know, we have a phrase in English, henpecked. Did you feel it? Just feel it? It's a man, what it is, it's, the, it's a relationship where the woman chose to operate in a belief system that if she tore him down, she could fix him. And we know that when a relationship is completed that she hates whatever it is that she has, right? It's a terrible relationship. And Peter's like, you wanna live that way? Don't live that way. Live the Christ way. But in order to do it, we're gonna have to look at this thing. So back to Peter where he said, this is how these women lived. They actually made much of their man. And in, and in doing so, they got a great man. They got exactly what they invested in. And he says to the husbands, likewise husbands, if you uh, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, for they are heirs with you in the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. Let's talk about this for a moment. First of all, weaker vessel, that bugs you. Every time I see it, because you know, Amy and I have been friends for years, you just say weaker vessel and I'll watch her wince. She says, no, she, she winces, right? And I've seen a lot of attempts at this. There is some physical reality to this though. That is to say, as men go, I'm probably in the bottom 10th of powerful. Most men can overpower me. Very few women can though. And, and when, you know, when women, when you're in a relationship with a man, you usually find out that we just happen to have a flow of testosterone that's gonna change the game a little bit. It's part of it. We get to have more muscle, sorry, right? And, and he's saying to the husbands, you have a, now we're in their world though, the husband actually could beat his wife if he wants to and no one's gonna stop it. No one's gonna stop it. And, and his strength, but he has more than just strength in that culture. He also has way more cultural cachet. So he's got all the cards in his hand. And so he's expecting the husband to look at the wife and go, hey, with all of this, both cultural strength and physical strength, it then lies on you to use it in a way that causes her to be loved because it's oh so very easy for you to hurt her and even destroy her. We're gonna talk about this in a moment, but I worked in domestic violence for a year. And we'll talk about the power and control systems that happen behind it. Those come from both men and women. The heart behind domestic abuse, it's, it's unisex, right? So why is it that the men manage to be domestically violent more than women? Because we have both the cultural cachet and the power 
to actually make good on the system. So there is real reality to him looking and saying, you've been granted power, and if you use it to hurt her, Lord help you, God will not listen to your prayers. That's what it says. God's like, I don't know, I'm not even gonna listen to you. If you use your power to destroy the one who I gave you to bring life and beauty to, this is what we're made for. So this is the system. And now right on my screen, I have a, a blank slide next. And so I'm not... They look awesome up there, though. Okay, so I don't know. They, they just came blank blue here. Strange up. I want to show you. This is the thing I do in counseling. I want to show you how marriages work. And I want to help make sense of this so that we can borrow Peter's model. And so here I have restroom signs. And the goal, the thing I want you to see is the ideal marriage, the one that we think we'd like to be in, the way it's supposed to work is we're going to give and receive 10 pounds of love a day. You know, pounds of love kilograms if you'd like. And uh, that's how it's supposed to work. But we all know that something actually happens. That, and I put her on the left, so, because literally the picture of the restroom sign, the woman was on the left, so they just, so in this case, the woman's going to be the one who gives a 10, but it could have been either. Because what happens is, we, you know that when a gift of 10 goes across all too often, it becomes an eight, doesn't it? Now, here's what our sermon can't do today. We can't describe what happens in that phenomenon because of time. But I want you to understand that that thing that we're about to pass over right now is why your marriage doesn't work the way you want it to. And if we could figure out why the 10 becomes an eight, and that's by the way why you come to me as a marital counselor, I'm trying to help you figure out how to make that actually work. But what actually happens is a person goes, oh, I just got an eight. That feels so nice. Do you know what I should do? I should give eight back. Eight goes across, boom, we've got a six. Do you feel it? And so now... You're this person. Have you ever done this? You thought what you gave was precious and the response was, oh yeah, thanks. Huh. So what ends up happening in every marriage, because it's, it's so difficult to stay open at giving a 10 when it's not coming back. So we start to diminish. It's hard to give. So we become a nine. And, then, and every marriage actually finds a settling point. In my, my one on the screen, they're going to become, each is giving a five and receiving a three because they're, you know what? I'll just... I don't want it to slide anymore, and so I'll just be the giver. But notice in this picture, both of them are the giver. And by the way, except for the, the power and control, domestically violent type situations, which we'll come to in a moment, almost every couple who's ever come to me are two people who desperately love each other and feel like I'm putting so much in. Why is it not coming back? And they're both pretty hurt that the other person thinks they're the giver, by the way. And the reason I do this, I want you to see that's why. It's getting lost in the middle. My job as a marital counselor is to actually help you figure out how can we restore that. But for today, I want you to see what happens from here. Because see, I said you're made to give and receive 10 pounds of love. Well, you're gonna need some extra pounds of love from somewhere, aren't you? Some extra pounds of well-being. And so we reach out. You know, so maybe, maybe someone goes golfing or shopping or over-invest in the kids or over-invest at work or porn, alcohol, an affair. That's where this stuff comes from. That's why this is happening. Because my heart needs something. It's not coming from this one. And by the way, notice I talk about your well-being looped for someone. Well, if there's ever a point where we're gonna loop our well-being for someone, it's gonna be our spouse, right? And if they can't give it to me, where's it gonna come from in this desperation? And I start reaching for more and more lifeless things. I know this happens because it happens to all of us. But what Peter's trying to say, the Christian system is not make your marriage perfect so it looks good, but rather he's trying to tell us if the source of life could come from your father, then you have a shot. 
In other words, if life from your father fills you up and you are filled with well-being, irrespective of your spouse's well-being and ability to give well-being, you have a tend to give regardless of what's coming back. That's what he's, when the likewise at the beginning of this passage was how we know. Because he was describing submitting to emperors who have horrible neck beards. If you were here last week, you know what I'm talking about. And he was talking about su submitting to masters who might not be very good. And in the same way, even if your marriage is just not good, and even if your, your husband or wife is not loving the way your heart knows it was made to be loved, God is saying freedom is offered to you in the middle of all of it. That's what Peter's trying to describe here. So a husband who is filled with peace and grace from the Lord is going to give great understanding and love to his wife, even if she's not returning it. And in the same way, because we have wives, because boy, we just happen to know that this happens to women a lot, right? Even if he's not present, even if he's over-invested in other places, even if he comes home and he's only partially, all those sorts of things, is your well-being tied to that? Or do you have grace and peace from your God to give it? That's what he's trying to say. So we took the exact same picture from government right here. Look what I did. I awkwardly just sort of like marriage. Same thing. In your marriage, instead of helpless passivity, there's nothing can be done. Trusting life from your Lord, making action and love in your marriage, even if they haven't earned it. Instead of bitter cynicism, oh, they're not gonna love me either. Instead of letting that bitterness creep in, confident righteousness. I can confidently pour life into this marriage even if I know it's not gonna come back from them because it comes from my father. And in the same way, instead of angry rebellion, Oh, if you're going to hurt me, well, I'm going to go hurt you. I'm going to show you. I'm going to show you. We don't maybe not say it, although maybe you have said it. <laughs> we do it, don't we? Oh, all of us who are married have been hurt. All you were dating, you know we get hurt, right? Wise submission. Wisely loving and giving our lives away because we know where it comes from. But I need to stop for a moment because I've been a Christian a long time. And I know that in every marriage where it's two people who love one another but it's not working, this stuff is the thing that will change your life if you can figure it out. But what about an abuse marriage? The opposite effect happens here because sometimes Christian women, especially, or men, are put in a situation where this thing is a living hell and what's happening to me hurts. But the Christians are saying, well, too bad. You have to just suffer it out. Just rub some more Jesus on. It's gonna be fine. And, and I can't do that anymore. I can't do these sermons without at least showing what the end of this looks like. Because in the same way that the Christians knew when to stop submitting to the emperor and to, and, to, and to do something else, we need to talk today a little about what does the other edge of this look like, and it's important. Number one, Jesus himself said, you know, when he talked about divorce, because uh, there were some rabbis who taught that a man, well, first of all, it was only the man who could divorce. <laughs> uh, who could divorce her if she burned the toast? Didn't matter. If he wanted to, he could. And other rabbis were like, uh, I think sexual immorality is the only reason. And Jesus was like, yes, you're right. If somebody's cheating on the other one, in other words, once you've joined your body to somebody else, you've broken that covenant, that's a reason. It doesn't mean you have to. Many of us know marriages where somebody stepped out and cheated and, and the, the disaster and hurt that came out of it's enormous, but somebody in love chose to reconcile that marriage anyway. It's possible. Reconciliation is always possible, but it honestly is also a reason to say, look, you've joined your body to somewhere else, you broke our covenant. It's not, it can be a deal breaker. Even Jesus himself said it. Uh, we want to talk about physical abuse. Some of you are living in systems where you're actually afraid. And maybe not here today, but it happens in the church too. And so we're never going to, we just can't be silenced. Where you're being choked and strangled. And, and, and abusers have this thing, by the way, 
where this is how she knows she's in trouble. He goes like this. That's it. I don't know if you can see it from here, but she can and she knows. Oh my gosh, here we go. Here we go. Control, power and control dynamic. Sometimes, because abusers, by the way, they do not like to use physical violence. They like to use the system. And so here's the, what's in the system of power and control dynamics. Number one, he's working at isolating her from friends, working at isolating her from family or sources that can look and say, this isn't working right, okay? The next one, and I use he because it's more common, but it can go both ways, all right? Minimization of blame. That thing I did that really profoundly hurt you, it really wasn't, but you're over-exaggerating. It's not really what you claim it is. Your feelings are wrong. And then, by the way, he then admits that it was actually wrong. But when he says, and really, I wouldn't do it if you hadn't. Oh, yes, you're right. It's always her fault that she's getting abused. It is almost universally present. Also, culture of threats. The slamming on the table. The, uh, the throwing, uh, this next one, intimidation, inanimate violence. This is throwing stuff against walls, hitting walls, creating the culture of violence around, well, I didn't hit her. When, we, uh, when cops go into the houses of domestically violent men, the holes in the wall are just everywhere. <laughs> you see, they don't want to use violence, but they want to use control. Insults, crazy making. Now Listen. This comes from the, uh, the power and control wheel. It's, uh, it's a really helpful resource. There's not a single one of these things that we haven't had in our marriage in some small way. Because I've failed my wife. I've manipulated and, and she's, you know, you get it. It's not that these things appeared one time. Oh, he got really mad and he hit a door one time. He's domestically violent. I'm out of, no, it's not it. It's when it's the system. When you realize that you are perpetually afraid when you're perpetually in pain and when you try to deal with it, you find not a person who's trying to seek your well-being, but a person who's trying to maneuver you into, because this is the get to and have to thing. They've taken before you ever could give it. What if it's you? You need to talk to someone. I promise if you talk to me, I know what to do. But even then, what if you're afraid? What if you're afraid, if I talk to Steve, what if Steve makes us get together? What if my husband finds out that I, or my wife finds out that I talk to somebody and then I'm gonna be punished all the time? If you know that talking to somebody about it is gonna get you punished, then I promise you're in a power and control relationship. Because somebody who loves you wants you to get help. Somebody who wants to control you, manipulate and keep you down, they want to hurt you. And the very fact that you'd be afraid to talk to me about it lets you know the power and control dynamics are there and we really need to talk about it. So here's what I do. I put this up here. Um, I don't always put specific counselor's number, but this is Ed Vollmer's number. And the reason for Ed is he was my advisor. He runs the domestic violence groups for, uh, for Mommy. He does some counseling down in Finley. He keeps a f uh, small amount of hours in, in Bowling Green. That's his number. It's gonna be in the, uh, the, the PowerPoint. So if you don't wanna be writing it down right now, if you feel weird about that, but you need to, it's gonna be in the, the video that we'll post on the Facebook. What, if you know that I'm talking about you right now, Call Ed. This is his job. He knows exactly. He knows where the resources are. He knows what to do, how to do it. He is, this is what he spent his life on. He's very specific niche in counseling. Talk to someone. Stop living afraid. Bam, which gets come up. I'm, I'm running over on time. I really wanted marriage to make sense today. We go back to this last slide because this is the normal. Next week, we're going to talk about it from a different vantage point. Uh, the, is it the Seiferts and the Burses are going to be up here? Bo's going to be interviewing them. And it's going to be really 
the, the question and answer, how, does, how do they work their marriages? Today I gave you sort of the, the idealistic picture, what's working behind the scenes and the Christian heart that foundations it. Next week, we're just gonna talk about it in really simple ways. Um, but we've got other things we need to do now. You gotta, you gotta come over here, kiddo. One of the worst parts about living in a college town, you're not in the light yet. Until it's blinding you, you're not there yet. There you go, see? That's, that's how you know is you can't see anything. They come and they get involved and they, they serve and they sing. And, and, and I've known this one since you were like, freshman? Did I know you were a freshman? And then they become like world-class coffee makers that win like national prizes. And then they get recruited to run coffee shop in Cincinnati. Is it technically in Kentucky? It's technically Kentucky. It's con- so we really need to pray for this one? Father, thank you for Rachel. Thank you for what she's been to our congregation and the love she's poured in and the care uh, and the love of our Jesus that she's put here. Thank you for her voice and how lovely it is. And Father, we ask that as she departs from us toward a new job and a new place and, and, and new, new friends and, and a new body, Father, would you provide the men and women who will love her in Christ there? Would you provide a place for her to worship our Jesus there? And would you do great things in this piece of your temple and this part of your royal priesthood to make your kingdom.